Okay, everyone, welcome to the first of our Audience of One events here live on Facebook and also on YouTube later on this evening. Well, I want to welcome you all. This is our first chat, chat time giving us a go. Whether you're a fan of what we're doing as a men's ministry or you're just checking us out, it would be great to have you here. Um, I'm honored that we can do this tonight and we've got some amazing guests and friends lined up who are going to be uh, chatting through some golf tonight, some living for Jesus, living for an audience of one. And the first guy I want to introduce you to is a great friend of mine. I met this guy for the first time um, two years ago almost, and my life hasn't been the same since. Uh, Pete Hiskey is uh, an absolute legend. He loves golf. He loves Jesus. And I want to introduce you to Pete. And Pete, come and tell us a little bit about yourself, Pete, and what you do. Hey, uh, thanks, bud. That's, uh, I think my life changed a couple of years ago, too, when I met you. And uh, just love the Irish people, love love golf, love Jesus, and it's it's been a real pleasure for me, um, you know, the last several years to help connect people around the world uh, in two of my greatest loves, which are following Jesus and golf. And so I serve as a you know, personal motivational coach for for players on the PGA Tour, the Web Tour, our case the Navicorn Ferry Tour, as well as uh, helping train up uh, people around the world to serve in that capacity. So it's, uh, it's a great, great honor, great pleasure. I've, I've had a little time off lately at home, like many of you. Um, a little more time to look in the mirror. I know we're going to talk about that, you know, what that, what that looks like. Looks, it's challenging for all of us, right? And uh, it's, it's just great to be with you. I look forward to having a wonderful conversation this afternoon. Well, it's time, I think, to invite our uh, VIP, shall we call him, this 2009 Open champion, Mr. Stuart Saint, also known as Lisa tonight. So, Stuart, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, Spud. It's good to be on. And I know um, I've learned a lot about myself this last few months. And one of the things I learned is that I'm technologically way behind most of the world. And that's why you'll see my wife's name, Lisa Sink, in the corner of the screen, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if everybody sees that or not, but yeah, um, that's been a common thing since we share an account. It's, it's great, great to be back with you. Last year when we were over at um, Portrush for the Open and we got together up at your church in not too far away in, in Coleraine, it was, um, it was a great night. And so um, I'm hoping that some of the, the guys and the gals that I got to meet that night are also watching us here to see, uh, see what we can carry on and um, see what we can get into. It's going to be fun. I think you uh, maybe rented a crowd that week at the, of the Open after that event. I think there was a lot of people kind of follow, started following you and Andrew that week. While you're on that, tell us a bit what it was like being here in Ireland for the first time playing at the Open in Royal Portrush. Well, the, the Open always has a special feel, um, but last year I thought even more of, uh, of there was more excitement there because of the length of time it had been since we were back in Northern Ireland. And, and uh, obviously Northern Irish golf has come to the forefront of uh, world golf in the last several years with Rory. And, you know, it's just been a, a real explosion. So um, being back and personally, I love being in Northern Ireland. Actually, that was the first time I'd been in Northern Ireland, but I love being in Ireland. And, um, I, I never know exactly how much I need to separate the two, but I'll just call 
the whole thing Ireland as a dumb American that I am. <laughs> I just have, I love being in Ireland and um, I spent a lot of time there in my uh, pre-open weeks um, over the years. And so um, I love the way that the Irish people accept Americans and um, they, uh, they're just always welcoming. And believe me, you know, it doesn't always feel like that around the world when you go places, but um, the Irish people have always had open arms and, I felt nothing different when I came to Northern Ireland last year for the first time and just a well, great reception. The tournament was super exciting. Shane Lowry, of course, you know, just put the cherry right on the top and it was a good venue and you know, it's one of my favorite opens. Wow. That's amazing. I know um, Pete and I actually were walking together on the final day and I think we did have a, a, a chuckle to ourselves, Pete that we were, we were glad, as a home guy, we were glad that you got all four seasons in the four days that you played. <laughs> you um, did. Pete, Pete, <laughs> Pete, what was your experience about being here yeah. for the Open? Well, that, that last day, um, I mean, that, that's a memory. That was, uh, we, we, we saw it pretty much at all that last day. It was raining so hard. I don't ever forget that. But, you know, just, just the, you could tell with the love of the people, for the game, the respect for the game, the, I mean, it, it was, I've been to, gosh, I don't know how many tournaments over the years, you know, obviously several hundred. I, I don't think I've ever been quite an event like that where there was so much, um, the people were so kind. Uh, um, everybody was trying to, to do their very best to make it the best possible tournament there ever was. There ever was. And uh, frankly, I, I think they might have succeeded because they had the best tournament. I mean, you have the Open Championship, the oldest tournament, and arguably the greatest championship. Uh, and you had a, just an amazing venue and amazing people. I mean, um, yeah, it was it was great memory. And Stuart, you were what tie twentieth? Is that right? If I'm correct? Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, was, it was, it was, and it was a solid tournament. Yeah, you did. Tell us then, play, talking about playing a solid tournament, 2009, take us back, you know, where I think one of the things about lockdown, you know, has brought back has been the reruns of all the, of all the amazing mm-hmm. tournaments that we've seen in golf. I know for us here today, it was the miracle Medina was on the last day, was on all day. And it was just incredible to tune in and rewatch bits and pieces of it. That's, a, that's no pun to my American friends at all. But that was just incredible. Yeah. And I did get to watch the 2009 rerun with you and Tom by, Watson. By, by, talk miracle, to talk by miracle of Medina, I'm assuming you're talking about they televised the highlights of my round when I broke 70 to finish in the top 25 there in 2006, right? The miracle. No, not. Oh, it's not, not that one? Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I seem to have erased the other uh, miracle of Medina from my memory being, um, uh, being American. <laughs> So tell us about 2009 for you, that, that amazing win uh, against Tom Watson, the four-hole playoff, the nine-iron, 191 yards, twice into the 18th. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny uh, you mentioned that because uh, you probably saw the, um, the post on social media that the Open put out. That they mentioned that about the identical approach shots into the 18th hole in regulation in the playoff. And they... Um, couple of tweets before that they posted the entire final round broadcast and so 
you know, I'm susceptible to that kind of thing. So I clicked on it and I've been working my way through the broadcast for the last three or four days, piece by piece. And, um, you know, just kind of reliving some of it and, um, the way the course played the whole locations, you know, some of the tee shots and stuff, because a, a lot of the shots are really memorable, but it's surprising to me now how many I've forgotten. And I couldn't even tell you what holes I bogeyed or birdied, um, until like the last three. And so, um, I'm, I'm on, uh, at, at the moment I'm about to play the 15th hole. <laughs> so I know, um, I've been watching some of it and it's been fun to relive it, but it was, that it was just an incredible experience. Um, being in contention alongside Tom Watson, you know, made it feel just a little odd. And, um, there's a lot of things about Tom Watson being involved in that day that, that actually, um, probably helped me succeed in my goal of winning. And that was that I was distracted by Tom Watson because as a golfer, most of us are also, you know, big sports fans. And I was able to fully understand the, the, um, the story that was mm-hmm. developing with Tom and it kept my attention focused over there instead of right here. And a lot of times in golf, if you can kind of keep yourself focused elsewhere, then, you know, you kind of get out of your own way. And in a way that's what happened for me that, um, that whole week as the story with Tom Watson developed and he kept staying near the leaderboard, kept me distracted until uh, the last five or six holes when I realized that I had a shot too and was able to sort of uh, focus in on my own thing. Amazing. And Pete, tell us a little bit about what you do for your day-to-day work and your role on the tour and stuff like that with helping out with some of the guys and their families. Great. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking Spud. Um, you know, I guess the word that, that would best exemplify my wife and myself and we're out there is just being available. You know, if uh, you know, it could be helping Stuart and, and Lisa, it could be helping take Lisa to the grocery store, it could be helping walk around with Stuart and on a practice round, just saying, you know, how you doing, how's your mental state, you know, how you doing with following Jesus this week, is there a word, is there a, a thought that's... Um, might help you stay focused or centered or, or something. Maybe there's a fear that you're dealing with. Um, you know, is there, how you doing with the question of self-belief, which a lot of times, you know, for a golf pro is a big deal. Um, you know, uh, outside things that they maybe need a, somebody to process with them. They want a word of wisdom, like it might be working with an agent or, uh, you know, helping, helping build their team. These kind of things are the, the things that we try to be available for. And of course it's, you know, it's wonderful to work with a open champion or, a, you know, to see a victory, but, you know, frankly, it's just, it's meaningful to work with, uh, you know, a fiance of a caddy or uh, you know, somebody in the media, PGA tour officials. I mean, we're all, um, you know, we're all individuals. We're all people. We're all, um, of course, you know, Stuart, you know, we, we listen to him because he's won an open championship and, and rightly so there's very few people who have done things like that, but we've all, you know, in God's economy and God's view, we're all his children. We're all equal. And so, you know, trying to, to process that and work that is, uh, you know, is, a uh, it's a big deal. Um, so that gives you a flavor about what we do where I, I tell people and they go, why do you work on in the golf tour, I go, it's the only language I understand. I grew up with that and, and uh, an uncle who played on the PGA tour. So I was out there when I was a kid and I can talk birdies, bogeys, Byron Nelson, 
Ben Hogan, Tom Watson, Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, frankly, I'd like to go start watching the 15th hole of the 2009 Open Championship right now myself. I mean, I love that stuff. So I, I love golf, love playing. So it's a, anyway, that's a little bit about what my wife and I do out um, on the tour. Just trying to be available for, for whoever, whoever needs us. So thanks for asking, yeah. bud. No, thank you for what you do. You know, I don't. I know there's loads of guys. I got to go out uh, last year, year before. Meet some of you guys there, and it's just incredible to see all the things that go on behind the scenes. You know, and I think you, we we think looking in as fans, it seems to be like an incredible lifestyle. But going <laughs> from hotel to hotel every week, rental car to rental car, could have its toll on you eventually. Um, Stuart. <laughs> We all we all love golf, you know. If we're watching this tonight, we, we're huge gate uh, fans of the sport. Give us some advice for a twelve handicapper like me. I want to try and get down into single figures this season. You know, <clears throat> give us some thought. Uh, one thing I was wanting to ask you was, you know, sometimes guys go to the range and spend an arm and just hit balls, and you come away and you think, what was that for? You know, you just got rid of some aggression. Or whatever. What would you say for an hour-long range session for someone like me, some of the guys watching? Well, it's a it, it's a tough question to answer because it's different for every single player, really. And I, I guess the the easiest way and the most efficient way to answer that question is that if you have an hour to practice, then it's probably best to spend that hour in one place, and that is don't break it up into bunker shots, chipping, putting, driving wedge shots, because then you're going to end up doing very little of any. Uh, but I would, I would pick a part of the game to focus on for that hour. And um, okay. go with, uh, you know, if you want to do some putting drills, there's so many good putting drills that you can find online. They're, um, they're readily available um, to figure out exactly what you can do to improve your putting. Um, there's, the, the best thing to do is to try to mimic the kind of pressure you feel when you're in a round of golf. And uh, for that, there's completion drills where you're trying to complete a certain type of drill, like get around the circle, six balls from five feet or something like that. Um, if you're doing short game drills, uh, there's technique practice. Then there's uh, competitive practice where you're trying to get the ball up and down around the practice screen, various shots. Um, if you're on the range, it's important to choose targets and not just lazily aim balls down the center of the range and hit them because that's nothing like what golf teaches you. And so there's just a lot of different ways to practice to make yourself better. But um, one super important thing that underlies all that is that if you're going to take the time to practice, first get some advice that you're practicing the right things and not ingraining the wrong things because that's a really big part of um, – Spud, since you mentioned that you're a 12 handicap, and there's a reason you're a 12 handicap, it's because you probably have a lot of flaws in your game. And golf, there's no perfect golfer. And so um, we all have our own flaws. But the, the biggest thing about the pros and elite golfers is that we are very in tune with what our, uh, what our flaws and faults are so that we can focus on those, not to the point of, of getting too wrapped up in them, but knowing where they are so that you can be ready for when they might show up on the course at an important time so so speaking of that i i got a few buddies to send me in some of their swings because you did say it was an individual thing um and i'm wondering if there's anything that you can give us a quick 10 10 15 second 
you got to do this. You, you got to do okay. that. This is I'm John, a terrible coach. This I'm is John, a bad coach. So, <clears throat> this so we're is looking John at Savage. A, we're looking at John hitting a driver here, it looks like. He's taking his practice swings, and I can already tell what his weight shift is going to look like based on that little practice swing there. Nice camera angle, too, by the way. This really helps out with my <laughs> teaching abilities. So that setup, there's nothing really wrong with that. He's a little bit unathletic. And look at that. Okay, if you go back to the top of his swing, the weight, the weight is supposed to transfer to your for a right-handed golfer from your right from your uh, address point back to your right foot. But in John's backswing, you see that right there. The weight transfers to the outside edge of his shoe, almost to where the right foot is rolling to the outside, and that's a very inefficient way to capture your weight transfer. Watch the right foot here. See that? Yep. The weight yep. goes to the outside of the center axis of the right foot. And when you do that, the physics don't allow the weight and the coil to work together and to develop power in the body when the rotational power helps the club come through. In, instead, you, it's a lateral type of weight shift, which really doesn't help the golf swing develop any power. And you end up doing a lot of compensating for that. So that's one down. <laughs> Right, right, okay, just a, just a couple more. This is Brian. This is Brian McNeil. Okay. Let's see, Brian. What you got here? Now, that's a little bit better weight shift, but a little hurried. Looks like we're playing golf in Florida, maybe. Um, it's um, a little hurried in the transition now, and I, I can't really see Brian. I think you said his name is Brian. I can't see his age too well, but it looks like he's restricted a little bit in his physical uh, – uh, his – flexibility because the back of his swing is only about two thirds of a back swing. And that works fine for somebody who can develop massive speed on the way down. But um, something tells me that maybe that's not the case here. Um, in this case, I would say setup looks okay, but just do some simple stretching and, and exercising and maybe increase the body's flexibility and willingness to go a little further back to dig into that reservoir of power. So fi finally, I I'm leaving the best to last. Oh, yes. I love these. <laughs> the best thing about these is they don't need any correction. They're always so natural. Let's see it. Look, he aims perfectly. I mean, if you just drew a plane line, like right up and down that shaft, you would see that there's no real corrections to be made. Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, look at this. He even approaches the ball from the inside. This is the, if we could all have the mentality that this young man has when we get 47, like I am, then uh, golf will be a lot more fun and a lot easier, and we all win <laughs> quite a bit more. <laughs> the main thing, a kid that age, you know, I just always encourage to get out there and play golf a lot and fall in love with it. Yeah. And you know, not everybody does, but if you if you fall in love with golf and you play a lot and you pursue it, then a kid that age, the the learning curve is astonishingly steep, and they get better quickly. Awesome, because that's that's my pension plan right there. There you go. <laughs> that's my sauce. <laughs> I'm only joking. No, that's my boy, Micah. He loves the game. He, he pesters me every day to go to the golf course. So mm. he'll, be he'll be delighted with that's that. Great. Um, have you any questions, Pete? Yeah, I, w I think uh, most people would probably be pretty interested at, at this point. Like how, how, how are you staying sharp, Stuart? Um, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. During this time, I mean, this has been a, a real challenge. No, no specific competitiveness to keep you sharp. What are you doing to keep yourself sharp these days? Well, that's a, um, 
there's a lot in that question too. And I think I like a lot of people when everything started to really come to the forefront and the dominoes started to fall with coronavirus back in uh, early March, I think it sort of took me by surprise. And um, at first the stay at home and the lockdown and quarantine, of course that looks different everywhere. You know, I'm in the state of Georgia in the U S you're in Maryland spuds in Northern Ireland. So I think it looked a lot different to the three of us, what quarantine meant. Um, but for the first couple of weeks, I was pretty depressed and, you know, I sat around and I didn't, wasn't very motivated to do anything. And then along about the, I don't know, the third or fourth week, it kind of started to feel a little bit more normal. And I found a little bit more motivation and I did some projects at home during that depressing time and just tried to keep myself busy. But then where I live, the weather was nice. The golf courses were able to stay open and I got out, started practicing a little bit and playing. And, um, I kind of found that there was a lot of golfers that live in my area that also were kind of feeling the same way I was. And so we started this little, uh, on group me, it's this little chat thing. And we started this little group where we got together and competed against each other once a week and played 18 hole stroke play threw a little bit of money in the pot. And, uh, like my caddy says, you had to carry that 200 pound scorecard in your pocket for, um, for 18 <laughs> holes and try to shoot a score and compete. And that's the way we, we kept sharp on the golf course. We had, we ended up with 68 players in our group and, uh, we had little tournaments and we would have anywhere from 20 to 35 at a time. And we would pair up just like a tournament. We'd put the ball out. We'd play by the rules. We'd post a score and everybody put in a hundred dollars and, uh, we paid the top five or so usually. And I was the administrator of the group and I loved it. You know, it was, it was fun to meet some new people. Some, uh, we had some gals that played and, um, you know, I would never have met a lot of these guys and gals if, uh, if it wasn't been for this. So, um, I got to play with different people, see different golf games. I got to compete. My golf game was pretty good during the time. So, um, that was good, you know, to have some confidence and know what to work on and just stay, uh, it was kind of like pushing pause on your career, but at the same time you had to keep kind of moving too in order to keep, uh, keep sharp. And so on the course, that's what we did off the course. It's um, there's been some Bible study. There's been um, just some catching up with people that I haven't talked to in a while. And a lot of these kind of meetings on zoom, uh, a lot of people are very familiar with zoom now I know around the world. So um, it, it's just, uh, it's been a little bit of everything, but as far as staying sharp on the golf course, we got together here and we were purposeful about it. And uh, we were able to, to, avoid just staying at home and doing nothing. And, um, so I think, uh, I'm hoping that the, this of the 68 players in our group, the ones that competed routinely, I think hopefully will be out there and be uh, maybe ahead of the game when it comes uh, time to start competing again for real. And, uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, but it's been, we, we've been very fortunate living here where I do that it's a time of year when the weather's nice and, uh, the golf courses were open and able to, um, adhere to all the guidelines. And so a golf course was a place you could feel safe, um, protecting yourself and protecting the public, the, you know, other people from, uh, the dangers that we now know are, um, are out there. So it's been a interesting ride, but that's the way we've kind of dealt with it around here. You spoke and ask another question here, Stuart. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Stuart, I, I was, um, you, You've been on the, the PGA Tour for quite a few years now, and you've had some ups and downs. 
you know, like a lot of players, you, you've stayed out there quite a while, which is a great testimony to your, your drive and um, your success. Um, but how do you, um, you know, how do you handle the ebbs and flows as a man? Like, you know, and maybe even speak into the question of like, if you, you know, what would you tell an aspiring pro who's 27? I mean, you're 47. What do you, kind of advice would you give to a, a younger player or a younger guy to keep themselves sharp, you know, or to like be able to handle the, I mean, for, for me, how do you handle the double bogeys in life or how do you handle, the, you know, not just in the round? Oh yeah. Well, um, if I was really good at that, I would, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, um, seriously though, I think that's what you're asking is one of the things that separates somebody that can advance into like a one of the higher tiers in their field um and, and doesn't have to be professional golf it can be any walk of life that, that's chosen but dealing with the ups and downs um is for me personally i rely on a couple different things and i think that um the first thing i rely on is just intuitively learning through experience that you don't have to really ride emotionally on every shot and every result. I remember back in my twenties, I cared so much about where the golf ball went and I was so heavily wrapped up with my results and the, and the way that that dictated how I felt about myself, my identity, that it, it was, it felt like a real heavy burden, really heavy. Cause I, you know, playing golf, I think we would all agree is not the most taxing thing to do in the world, but competing against the best it, it, it whatever it is in the world is taxing and it, it's quite uh, difficult. So that part of golf is challenging. And, um, and so in my twenties, I cared so much about everything, every result. I just hung on every putt, every tournament, every tee shot. And as now I got older, I realized that it's a lot easier to deal with those peaks and valleys when you're not just, so focused on the results of the shot, but you're able to back up and focus a lot more on the process. Basically it's what you can control versus what you can't control. And it just has taken me a long time to really understand that and, and to uh, figure out how to get the most out of that philosophy. That's now that's one thing intuitively that I have uh, learned how to deal with uh, those peaks and valleys. The second thing is, is really just a, a life centered on faith in Christ. Um, because he gives me something to focus on and to, to ground myself in that is not going to change. That is never going away. That doesn't care if I make bogeys or birdies. Right. Doesn't care if I didn't match my pants and my shirt that great that day, <laughs> uh, you know? <laughs> um, and, and it's just uh, the, the unconditional love that we receive from Christ through the gospel is something that, it doesn't just iron out the peaks and the valleys. It irons out all the bumps and it gives you something baseline to, um, to ground yourself in. And that's, that's another thing that I've been so fortunate that my eyes were open when I was in my twenties to the gospel and what it has to offer me that I didn't have to do anything to go get it except to just accept and believe. And, and, um, that's, that's my, that's my two ways that I really have, um, dealt with the ups and downs and, and yeah, golf gives you plenty of downs and plenty of ups and life does the same thing for you, but it's not just, it's not when you receive them. It's if you're going to, or it's not if it's when, 
you are going to receive your trials and your, your down moments and your valleys. And so um, the question is, you know, how are you going to deal with it? And what are you going to do when you come off the other side of it? And and where are you going to look to your, uh, what are you going to look for your, for your compass bearing that, uh, where's that going to point? And so for me, the answer has been Christ. And the answer has been to, to try to really focus on what I can control and uh, let what I can't control just go on and exist on its own. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Stuart, obviously we're, we're calling these next four Sundays, you know, audience of one, as we kind of look and chat to people like yourself and Pete and a few other guys in the next couple of weeks, what it is to live our lives for an audience of one, you know, in this season of our world being shaken with pandemics and fear. A lot of guys in particular, you know, we, we, we put our, our identity in our role, our job, our responsibilities, our job title, whatever it might be. Yeah. And we identify that as that. And obviously a lot of guys are out of work at the moment. Some of the future is maybe looking bleak, whatever it might be. How do you, how do you best help yourself um, live every day for an audience of one with all of the stresses and strains that professional sports brings every time you step in between the ropes? Well, the first thing I I think is that you have to go back to the basic questions of our existence. And um, to me, the scientific explanation that we just came from a bunch of molecules floating around in some gas pool, that that became me and my phone right there and my wife and my iPad. It just doesn't add up to me. So (laughs) I point to a creation. um, And so because of that, I just don't think that the creator who created all this in this grand design created mistakes. And um, really what, what you do with your job, if you're, um, if you're relying on your, your performance at work or at home or with your kids or with your buddies, if you're relying on your performance to uh, dictate how you feel about yourself and your identity, then you're just cruising for uh, a disappointment and some frustration. And I think that's well-documented, um, I'm not the first one to uh, come up with that. <laughs> so um, if you, if you know that God created you, which I, I know, and if you know that God doesn't make mistakes, which I know, then what can you do? What do you have the power to sway that and to change that? Knowing that God's not going to change and knowing that he can't make mistakes, then, that means I'm not a mistake, no matter if I three putt the last hole to lose, you know, I mean, I've done that and it doesn't feel good. Let me tell you, but it doesn't change the way God sees me. And I rely on that all the time. And, and let me tell you, this pandemic has caused a lot of people to really assess the way that we are tied to this world. Um, yeah, that's right. For instance, like there's a lot of fear out there. And I think we've experienced various stages of, uh, disbelief, fear, um, concern, um, compassion, you know, a lot of different emotions at different times. I think we've all experienced it, but one of the things that I keep going back to is that COVID-19 and the seeing some of the scenes from around the world and from, uh, here in our own country, New York city. And I know right where I live in the big city here of Atlanta, Georgia, you know, there's horrors going on. And, um, we may never know exactly the extent of all this until later on. I'm sure we won't, but um, 
the fears and the anxieties, it, what you're really worried about is the nature of the fear and the anxiety. It's you don't want to suffer. We're all afraid of suffering. And the reason is because suffering separates us from what feels good and what we want and what we have. It separates us from those things. And we fear that. And the whole pandemic has really taught me a lot about what I fear and what I hold dear to my heart, like what I value, what are my idols? Sure. I've missed playing in professional golf for three months now. I love playing professional golf. It's a really big part of my life and I get a lot of joy from it. But I, early on, I'm, I missed it to a point where I felt like this is unhealthy. I, I'm missing this sense of normalcy too much. And um, what it told me was that I was depending on that too much and that I had let that establish itself in my heart as an idol and it had a stronghold in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I had to really examine like, what do you really care about? You know, what do I really, what, what kind of strongholds do I want in my heart? I don't want things that are going to be taken away from me that are going to change. And so that's why I keep going back to Christ and the gospel, something that really will never be changed, never change or never be taken away that I can dwell in it forever, no matter if there's a pandemic, no matter if there is no vaccine next year and we're in the same situation come next winter. Um, but that's what it's really forced me to really examine about my own life is like, where are the strongholds in my heart? And the pandemic's done a great job of identifying what those are. Right. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you for that. Uh, can I, just a question for both of you then, because it's quite similar. Obviously, being on tour then and having having a faith in Jesus and trying to follow that out every day and live like that, you know, you, you don't have access to your local church because most Sundays, God, hopefully everything's going well and you're in the hunt come the last day. What, what tells what happens on, on tour for some of you guys as, as a support network for all of the guys who have a faith? Pete, you can address this one. You, you're you're well-versed. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we, we do have a a little kind of fellowship on Tuesday night. It's been going on for, man, it's closing in on 55 years. Uh, we've had this just about every week, and there's some weeks we don't have it, but it's really a time for players um, and their invitees to have, you know, kind of a, a place where they can share life, learn uh, how to stay a little bit more centered uh, in their faith and their belief. Um, yeah, so Sundays really wouldn't work too well <laughs> out on the PGA Tour, and I think I think most of the guys, uh, you know, of course, there's quite a variety of, of guys and wives and caddies and different people that, that pop in and out of our little church service. But I, I think um, and most of them are really I think the nice thing about having a Tuesday night service is that it, 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 it kind of pushes in the idea that we are in church all the time, that really what God wants is us to spend time with them 168 hours a week, 24 seven, every, every day. And that, you know, yeah, we go to a, we go to a service on, on a Sunday morning, a lot of times, a lot of us, um, but that's frankly brick and mortar that the early church didn't have that uh, early gatherings, we should say. So kind of having a Tuesday night service is, is in a hotel room a lot of times or a, somebody's house really kind of it kind of helps us all get centered so yeah we've had that for quite a while and it's uh i know it's been a, a real source of encouragement uh for Stuart and his family uh, and for a lot of his his close relationships out there 
Yeah, it has for sure. And um, one of the great things about it is that, um, and a lot of people listening may not understand this. Um, I think a lot of people have asked me like, so you guys just go and like talk about golf and like, like, Oh yeah, I got this bad break. And I can't remember the last <laughs> time I've been going to the fellowship for 20 years. And I can't remember the last time that golf was brought up in it. You know, it's just not when we come together, there's players, caddies, there's people from the television. There's sometimes there's some college kids locally that someone knows they come in. There's people I don't know who are there. And the, the biggest thing is that, there's no players, caddies. There's no, nobody has a label. You walk into that door and you're just a person and we all carry our own kinds of baggage. And it's just great to have other people to be able to sort of like uh, exhale with a little bit, you know, and just that hour or hour and a half of, of rest. And, and it's not just where we're sitting resting. I'm talking about a biblical type of rest that um, where you get to spend time in the word of God, learning about the Bible, hearing other people's ideas about the way it impacts them, the way that their life has been changed by it or the way they need to change their life by it. And it's just so great to be able to share that with people. And it refreshes me every week. And um, it's just a great way to start and get yourself charged up for the week. Um, But to be honest, if I didn't have a golf tournament going on, I'd still go to the Tuesday night fellowship i mean i i don't go there in order to prepare for a golf tournament i go there because i need my um i need to lick my wounds a little bit and life throws wounds at you and so um that's just a good way to get to know people and to uh to share some of your exciting excitement in your life and share some of the down parts of your life and uh we all rally around each other Awesome. Well, our, our time's coming to a close. I want to throw some quick fire questions at both of you. So we're looking for your top three courses in no specific order anywhere in the world. We'll go Pete first. <laughs> oh, man. Royal Port Rush, Royal Port Rush, Royal Port Rush. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, oh, so I got such a pandering I, answer. I actually got to play, <laughs> I got to play Port Rush uh, the week after the tournament, which is like I've never – played a major tournament the week after it. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I love golf. I love playing. So, um, I just, I love that golf course. I mean, St. Andrews, love St. Andrews. Uh, and probably maybe third would be, oh, Pebble Beach, somewhere on the Monterey Peninsula. I mean, somewhere right around there. That's my three. Well, it's not fair that Pete just, took two of my three and so he stole my thunder yes so i'll just tell you the two that he took from me and then i'll name another three but he took pebble beach and he took the old course and um the old course would be my number one and there's not even really a distant second i mean the old course to me is the absolute best i love playing it i just can't get enough playing the old course and learning about it amen so um so pete took two of my three so i'll have to come up with another you get a bonus three. Uh, three. I get a bonus three. Okay, I'll, I'll go Muirfield, Scotland, as uh, one of my top three. And I would go with um, Oakmont in Pennsylvania as, as a, a member of that top three. And last but not least, I'll go Harbortown. I love playing in South Carolina. I've got two wins there, but it's because I love playing there. Not, I don't love it because I won there. It's uh, just a unique kind of course. And, um, yeah. So that's three different types of courses. Oakmont's huge and difficult. 
Um, Muirfield okay. might be the most pure links course in the world and uh, Harbor Town's marshy and windy and coastal and tiny mm-hmm. greens. And, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Favorite club in the bag? Oh gosh. Um, boy, that changes about every 15 minutes, doesn't it? When you're playing golf. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love to unleash the fury on a driver and see that ball go straight down the middle where you're looking? But also, who doesn't love to bury your competitor with a 10-footer that just crushes the soul? Um, yeah. I, I think I probably have to go with my, uh, with my putter. My putter is my favorite club because, you know, when you have confidence in the putting, it just it, it gets into every part of your game and it kind of gets into every part of your life, unfortunately. We don't want to be that way, but we are. <laughs> There's, you didn't steal mine, but it is my putter, Stuart. <laughs> and uh, the reason why is I think in my life I've averaged about seven greens around and I'm a zero handicap. So you, there's only one way you do that. That's right. <laughs> you're yep. a decent chipper, but you make a lot of putts. So yeah, yeah putter by far. <laughs> so this one's going to be sweat, slightly different for both of you from the different experiences that you have with Pete being behind the ropes and you being inside the ropes, Stuart. Your favorite four days on tour I want you to take one day, so kind of like the opening round of a, of a major, the Friday, the, the, the whatever Friday's the best, whatever Saturday's the best, and whatever Sunday's the best. Can't be the Maybe same tournament. Part three at the Masters would count as Wednesday. <laughs> That's everybody's favorite Wednesday. That's a given. That's a given. <laughs> Well, every other tournament has a pro ammo Wednesday, so you're not going to vote for that. <laughs> yeah, <you're not. laughs> no, those are great. Your favorite Thursday? I, you know, I think you, I just got to defer to Stuart. I mean, it's just not even the same. You know, like I'm not even. <laughs> I mean, I, I love all the tournaments watching these guys. I love. I actually love watching the guys when they get on a roll and really are playing well or in the zone or you know don't even know you're around. I mean. Any days like that. And then I think also for me, there's a lot of satisfaction. Um, you know, probably probably my greatest Sunday in golf, I'll just share one day, was seeing Billy Hurley win, um, you know, the Quicken Loans tournament about five years ago. Just because he's such a close friend. I knew what it meant for him to win at his in his home state in front of Tiger Woods. Um, you know, I do cry a lot, but I, I cried a, a lot that day. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, see, to see a friend win, you know, see Stuart win, see Andrew Putnam win, Zach Johnson, close, you know, close friends out on the tour. Um, I, I have a lot of great Sunday memories. So I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll throw that in. I'll let Stuart go for the day by day. <laughs> this is a tough one. Uh, good it's answer, tough. though. Good answer. I, I remember the day Billy Hurley won that tournament. That was, that's a, that's yeah. a great tournament to win. Yeah. Um, my, I'm going to go, I can't leave the masters out of this. So I'm going to go with masters as my favorite Thursday because mm-hmm. I love the anticipation, all the talk about who's the favorites and how the course is going to play and the weather. And then you got suddenly your the masters has the best app in, in golf, you know? Um, and I say that partially as a, uh, an homage to one of my good friends, Jonathan Baker, who's in charge of the masters app. He runs it, <laughs> but, um, they have a great app and you know i just love the anticipation of being there and um so the masters is my favorite thursday um friday and saturday i'm gonna have a hard time picking out any events necessarily because you know that 
the cut day is it's always fun to watch the cuts in the majors um, because the especially like the U.S. Open if, if the Open Championship is playing tough the cut numbers just going like crazy it's going up 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 and um, I remember being I think I was eight over finished in the clubhouse at the Masters one year when it was windy it was the year Zach won 2007 and I was eight over I thought I missed the cut and, and Masters has a 10 shot rule and Zach was leading and he three putted 16 for double and he's my best friend on the tour and I'm like <laughs> he just made double I'm gonna get in the cut I'm gonna make the cut now so um, it's always fun to watch the cut on Fridays at any major and Saturday um, hard to say too but you know when uh, my my favorite type of Saturday is if I'm not leading the tournament when I just barely make the cut. Maybe I birdied the last two holes to make the cut, and I shouldn't even be there. But those days feel so free because you go out early, you got fresh greens, it's soft, and there's really nowhere to go but up on the leaderboard when you're in tied 65th. And boom, you know some of those rounds come out, and you just rocket through the field. Those are my favorite Saturdays. Um, Sunday, I think I have to say the RSM Classic is my favorite Sunday because it's the last event before Thanksgiving, and we have a big break after that. <laughs> the next event is usually not till January, so it's a it's a nice long break when I know I can go and get some things done at home, and the traveling's slowing down, and so that's my favorite Sunday. Brilliant. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this one last question each as we're bringing up your close. Um, different question for both of you, but we just want to say um, thanks to everyone who's been tuning in tonight. I know. Uh, like me, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time listening to Stuart and Pete uh, and to hear their stories. We're going to have a follow-up Zoom call straight after this. Um, Stuart, Stuart and Pete won't be part of it, but we'll have guys there if you've got any questions about what they've been talking about tonight. You want to explore about faith in Jesus. You want to understand where this all fits in. We'd love to chat with you, grab a cup of coffee, jump on the call. It'd be great. There's some great guys there. I'll jump on there after this as well. Um, and um, we just want to thank Stuart and Peter being with us tonight. One final question for, for you each. Um, I'm going to ask Pete you first. I'll ask them both and then I'll hand it over to you. So Pete, I'd love you to talk to us a bit. We're, we're a men's ministry. We really just want to see men be all that can be for Jesus. That's find him, give him their life to him, and live as kingdom men. And that would be being a father as well, not even just a biological father, but being spiritual fathers. And I know for you, after meeting and talking to some of the guys on the tour, they, they definitely look up to you as one of those guys in their life who can just be that spiritual role model and father figure. Uh, what, what does that mean to you? And what would you say to some guys watching this tonight if they could walk in that calling? And maybe, Stuart, just for you, if, if you would close us out after Pete's answers his question, what would you say tonight to guys who are listening into this tonight and just are skeptical about faith, they're skeptical about having to make any changes in their life, think that it might be okay, but they don't yet know Jesus, what would, what would you say to them to encourage them to think that through? So, Pete, you first. Um, well, thanks again, Spud, and thanks for, for all of you that are listening and would they, um, even want to listen to what I'm saying when you got Stuart's think here. I mean, it's just really, it's, it's a real privilege to, to talk alongside my friend and my brother, Stuart. But I think... The thing that comes to my mind as we, we close out this time is, is uh, it's related to golf and the spiritual life, and it's, ha- it's how do we talk to ourselves. And I think this last kind of time period, I've, I've had a lot of discussions with, um, with a lot of men, and it, it, it's really had us, you, you look in the mirror, and in some ways you look at yourself, 
more honestly, more reflectively. And a lot of us really, you know, have a hard time with that. We really don't like ourselves or we don't like what we do or the way we think or um, it's very negative. It's like you've, <clears throat> maybe you've been told something about yourself from your own uh, earthly father, you know, you'll never be a success or this problem or your boss or your uh, coach or somebody like that. And you juxtapose <laughs> that with, uh, you know, what your heavenly father says about you. Like, and I'll just share one, just one little thing that's really helped me is I've, I've, uh, I've just gotten into the practice each morning of, of telling myself, actually saying out loud to myself, you know, that I am, you know, um, you know, Peter, uh, you're God's son, you know, with all rights and privileges, you love me and you're proud of me. I mean, I actually say this out loud and I encourage others to do the same, like that you, you got this, you, you understand me, you want to know me. And as I hear myself, shit's truth into myself, it changes me. It changes the way I believe and the way I think, not just reading it on the paper or you know, you actually hear yourself talk. And uh, I think this is, this is a big deal for us. You know, it teaches us proper self-belief. It's not a trick. Um, you know, when I, when I spend some time with Stuart, let's say I'm watching him on the range, and he, I say, you ever, you ever tell yourself, you know, you deserve to play well? And he goes, well, you know, you kind of, eh, maybe. I go, listen, you're putting in the work. You know, like it's not a, it's not a false statement to say, like, you, you – you sort of deserve to play well. You, you work hard. You've trained yourself. You put yourself in this position, and it's the same in our spiritual life as men. That we are we're to teach ourselves to see ourselves the way God sees us. This is what it means. And when, when the Apostle Paul says, "Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the righteous you. Put on the true you. See yourself as God sees you. He's He's so proud of you. He loves you so much. If you could ever." If we could ever just grasp even that, how much he loves us unconditionally. He's, he's, proud. he's the perfect father that loves us. These kind of statements are huge in our life. And this is a time when a lot of us are, are feeling really bad about ourselves. So we're looking at ourselves, man, I'm a failure as a father, as a businessman. And I'm, I can tell you, you could tell I'm about ready to preach. So I'm going to stop that right there. And I'm going to turn it over to Stuart. But, you know, uh, telling yourselves to see yourself the right way is, is a big deal um, as a man. Awesome. And uh, I'll piggyback on what you said and, and say that, you know, an important part about how we see ourselves is asking ourselves how God sees us. And uh, God loves us all unconditionally and he sees our flaws and he still loves us. And so that tells us a lot about the nature of our God. And, right. yeah. and so um, one of the things about, uh, and I'll just repeat the question uh, Spud, you kind of asked me to address how some of the men on the call here, some there's, I think there's probably some gals on the call too, but um, how do the people on the call really that have some skeptical thoughts about faith, how, how would one of us address that? And I'll, I'll take the ball here, but I think we're all seeking peace, joy, and love in our life. It's an, it's an inherent part of the soul of the human being in the heart. And you, I know a lot of people think of faith in Jesus and Christianity as 
uh, just another set of rules that you have to follow. And, and that's really the opposite of what's really the reality of, of what the gospel offers you. And, and uh, in the Bible, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the first four books of the New Testament where the life of Jesus really is displayed and it really, the meaning of his life and what he was sent here for and his, his, uh, his nature being God and man is really laid out for us. That's the gospel. And it's also the message of what's in there that's also called the gospel. And so we're all seeking peace, joy, and love. And, but it's not a set of rules that you follow. When you accept what God is and what Jesus Christ means, he's God's son. And he came to take the sin away from the world because uh, sin exists everywhere. But all of our sin that we have done and all that we'll ever do is taken by Jesus on the cross. And so that doesn't lock you up in some kind of chains or uh, a list of uh, rules. It frees you from those things. And so in reality, it's freedom. It's not imprisonment. And I, and, or in, it's, you're enslaved by sin. When you accept Christ, when you make that choice, you're freed of that enslavement. And so knowing that to be true, that's the way that I deal with my peaks and valleys like we talked about earlier. That's the way that we deal with adversity. We deal with trials, constantly thinking about the doctrine of what the gospel really is and thinking it through and thinking to the end of like, okay, it all goes back to the cross. If you're standing, and I heard this from Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors of all time who um, I listen to his podcast all the time, but, and I'm just parroting what he says. He says, put yourself at the cross. You're watching the crucifixion. You're one of Jesus's friends maybe. And you're saying, I can't believe how bad this is. And I can't believe this is happening. And they're putting him up to die on the cross and he's being killed for no reason. He's a good man. What good can come out of this? And it seems terrible if you're standing there an onlooker, but what now that we know looking back is it's the greatest thing that's ever happened towards the redemption of mankind, but we couldn't see it because we can't see things outside of our own little space and our focus and our own, human worldly minds. So I'll just end by saying that what are you getting your peace, love, and joy from? If you're getting it from your job, there's a lot of people out there that have lost their jobs. There's uh, a lot of people out there that aren't really doing a great job at the job they have. And I definitely consider myself to be one of those people on many, many times. What are you getting your peace, love, and joy from? If, if you're getting it from, um, if you're getting it from uh, maybe you don't want to go towards faith and you don't want to investigate it, you're afraid of what it might mean that you might have to give up something that you don't want to think about what the nature of the gospel is, then you're getting your peace and joy and love by not thinking out the implications of what it is to consider those things. But somebody who is rooted in the gospel, somebody who's considered it and given it an oddest fair shake and looked into the Bible with an open mind and decided that that's for them is getting their peace, love, and joy from thinking through the implications of what the gospel means to them on a daily basis, on an um, every moment of your day type of basis. So um, that's what I would have to say. Consider it, give it a, give it a shake, give it a fair shake. And, and um, the reality is that the gospel is there for everybody. Awesome, man. Amen. That's amazing. Thank guys. I can't thank you enough for giving of your time.
Stuart, when, when do we get to see you on tour again? Well, this week the uh, tour starts back up in um, Fort Worth, Texas, and it's super popular field, so I'm not in. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I didn't get to get I'm, – I'm out by quite a bit. So, um, But I am going to play in the next several. So uh, next week is the RBC Heritage down at um, Harbortown, one of my favorite courses that I listed. So I'll be there and playing in several tournaments coming up. So I can't wait to get back out and play again. No fans, which is sad, but um, – our television fans will be uh, tuning in, hopefully, and we'll um, we'll hopefully put on a great show and um, get back to competing in a safe absolutely. kind of way. Yeah, absolutely, uh, guys. Listen, thank you so much. If you're watching and you're tuning in, head over. You'll see in the link below in the comments or on our Facebook page there's the details for the Zoom call. You can log on there and catch up and ask some questions if you want. Some some of our team. That'll be great. But for now, Pete and Stuart, thank you so much. Stuart, all the best for the season ahead. All right. All right. You know, we've got a lot, love, love love a lot of Irish love. If not, a lot of Irish love cheering you on. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Next week, guys, we're back. Thanks, bud. We've got the incredible George Lydon, who is a guitar maker. He makes guitars for Ed Sheeran and some incredible guitarists all around the world. He's a golfer as well. He loves his golf. So he's going to be on. He's going to be talking about how God called him to start making guitars. And uh, how that all changed his life from such a young age. He had never made a guitar before. So we're back here next Sunday night at 8. Log on to the Zoom call now, and we'll see you soon. Thanks very much. All right. Appreciate you guys. Thanks.